Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode number four of the Scottish History Podcast, continuing on the story today of William Wallace. Uh, In part three, or episode three, we went through the rise of William Wallace, uh, so from where he began from right the way through to the end of the Battle of Stirling Bridge on the 11th of September 1297. So we're basically just going to jump straight in from there. There's a lot more information to come in regards to William Wallace here. So just to quickly recap, the Scottish army with William Wallace and Andrew Murray had defeated the English army at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And now they were in a pretty commanding position. Uh, Just a few days after the Battle of Stirling Bridge, the English army inside of Stirling Castle, they surrendered because of the lack of provisions in which they had. The person who was left in charge of Stirling Castle with the Earl of Surrey uh, retreating down to Berwick and, uh, of course, Hugh Cressingham, the the treasurer, being killed and flayed at the battle. Uh, The command was left to a Commander Twang. Uh, William Wallace spared Commander Twang's life because of the bravery on the battlefield that he shown during the Battle of Stirling Bridge. From there, Wallace and Murray went around the central part of Scotland, taking uh, over Edinburgh, Roxburgh, and they took back Berwick away from the English, and they burned down many other towns south of the river. He and Andrew Murray then took control of the Scottish government in the name of the absent King John Balliol. See, Edward I always believed that William Wallace was trying to become the King of Scots, whereas William Wallace was actually trying to restore John Balliol back to the throne. And that's probably because, well, when we mentioned John Balliol before, you know, I mentioned that he was considered to be the empty jacket, the tomb to bard, uh, that he was really just a puppet for Edward but he'd started to show more leadership qualities which led to his arrest and subsequent imprisonment in the Tower of London. So at that point, when they were in Berwick, both 
Wallace and Murray wrote to the merchants in the German ports. This this letter actually still exists, uh, signed by both Wallace and by Andrew Murray to state that Scotland had regained power back from England and that trade would now resume between Germany or Europe and Berwick, Scotland. When they signed that document, they signed themselves as the commanders of the army of the Kingdom of Scotland and the community of that realm. But as I mentioned in the previous episode, Andrew Murray was to pass away very shortly after. So it was a few months after the Battle of Stirling Bridge, Andrew Murray, the, the man who was believed to be the brains behind the military assault, of Stirling Bridge had now died. This then led Wallace to become the leader of the Scottish army for himself. Now the English armies they had uh, and Edward specifically uh, had built these massive massive siege machines that were used for bombarding the castles. Warwolf being the uh, the big one that Edward I loved to use. William Wallace and the Scots army did not have these type of things to their disposal, so instead of trying to destroy big buildings when uh, they, they, they went towards the borders uh, in Scotland and then down into northern England in the early part of 1298, the best thing that they could possibly do was just to burn down the villages um, and and things like that that they, that they possibly could. So they were just basically burning down everything, making sure that there was no churches, there was no homes, there was nothing for anyone to to settle back into. So it is believed that when they get down to places like Newcastle, they take over Newcastle and then they head into a place called Durham and it is there that they ran into some very, very bad weather conditions and uh, they believed that this was due to the patron saint of Durham, St Cuthbert, uh, protecting his people and protecting uh, the people of Durham there. So at that point, the Scots then returned back to Scotland and Wallace returned as the leader of the Scottish army. It was at that point that William Wallace was awarded with two titles. He was given the title of Sir William Wallace. So he was knighted at that point, probably around about late February, early March of 1298 and he was elected as the sole guardian of Scotland. So the guardian of Scotland was the king, everything but the king. He obviously couldn't be the king, he was not of royal blood so therefore he could not actually physically be called the king but with King John Balliol imprisoned in the Tower of London someone had to be in charge of the government, in charge of the people and in charge of the army and this was William Wallace who was elected to be so. So then they were preparing at that point for the oncoming English army. Edward I had now got fed up of hearing about William Wallace. This name was ringing around in his head. Obviously, again, during the Battle of Stirling Bridge, etc., Edward is in France. He's not in England. Uh, so he's, he's heard the name William Wallace, but now, of course, he's heard that his army has suffered a major loss at Stirling Castle. Stirling Castle itself has been lost now to the Scots. So Edward is on his way to try and resolve that problem. 
Now, William Wallace is with his army and he is readying them for the next battle. He readies them by forming these hedgehog-like formations called shiltrons. Um, it's easier to look at a picture of a shiltron to really see what they were. But if you imagine a massive circle of men holding 12 foot long sharpened wooden spears with men on the inside with their swords and even more spears that basically just formed like what a hedgehog or a porpoise would do to protect itself. So they were stationary when they needed to be but because they they were made of men they could be mobile as well. The Scots didn't have major horseback cavalry and things like that. It was mostly foot soldiers. So because of that, they needed these sorts of formations in order to uh, to work and to really protect themselves. So William Wallace had worked on these shiltrons uh, that then later on with Robert the Bruce, they would be reused and they'd be reused all the way down through history. Once again, though, it is believed that it was Andrew Murray who originally had the idea for the Shiltrons, but William Wallace started to make them work. So Edward was absolutely determined to get his hands on William Wallace, defeat the Scots, and of course defeat William Wallace, and, and then William Wallace would disappear forever. So he comes up into Scotland, he's got roughly 10,000 heavily armoured cavalry, uh, they stop for the evening at Roxburgh in the Borders by June of 1298 and then they stayed there for around about a month after which their provisions started to dwindle so in uh, you know so in July of 1298 they start to head north looking for Wallace and the army so after searching for the Scottish army for quite a while, Edward had decided that he was just going to retreat back into Edinburgh. He could not find the Scots army, he could not find William Wallace, and he got to roughly about Linlithgow, uh, again sort of central Scotland, nearby Stirling, when they heard a report from two defected Scottish earls that William Wallace wasn't far away, he was only about 10 miles or so away, outside of a town called Falkirk. Wallace was quite surprised to find that the English army was now advancing upon his position and now the next battle they had to prepare properly for the next battle, which was going to be the Battle of Falkirk. A little fact, the night before the Battle of Falkirk, King Edward had much concerned that the Scots were going to sneak a surprise attack during the dead of night. So he had ordered his men to lie down next to their horses. So they, so they slept next to their horses. But whilst Edward himself was sleeping next to his own horse, his own horse actually trod on top of him, breaking several ribs. Um, and this led the English army to be in a little bit of a state of panic uh, the night before uh, the the battle because obviously they thought their king was injured and that the battle would not go ahead. The Scots would advance and therefore easily defeat him. But as you're about to find out, they, they were going to be okay. 
So the Battle of Falkirk takes place in probably late July 1298 or early August of 1298. We don't have an exact date as to when the battle itself took place. We also don't know exactly where the battlefield was either. It's a, a, a huge point of contention again for a lot of historians. Uh, but it is believed that Wallace's position was on the slope of a hill. Uh, the Scots loved being at the top of a hill, using the momentum coming down into their enemy. That's that's always or something which will always pop up throughout Scottish history. Robert the Bruce uh, loved it as well, which helped his victory at the Battle of the Pass of Brander, which we'll get on to. Uh, but things like that, you know, using the hill and the momentum from coming downhill was a great advantage that the Scots loved to use. So again, William Wallace, he uh, arranged his spearmen for massive circular um, shiltrons, and then between the shiltrons he placed the archers with their short range bows. Behind them was a small selection of Scottish cavalry whose job it was to write down the English bowmen. But Edward himself had, or his bowmen, had something which had never been seen on the battlefield before. You know, there was the short range bow and arrows, but Edward I had recently employed the longbow into his arsenal. The longbow had never been seen on a battlefield until this battle. It was the first time ever in history that the longbow was used as a weapon in battle. And that's really how the Scots were crushed at Falkirk. The archers which Edward had were mostly from Wales, very, very well-trained Welsh archers. And as soon as those arrows started raining down on the shiltrons, because you were not protected from above, obviously, it, it was the, 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 the sky turned black with the arrows raining down on top of the Scottish army. And very, very quickly, the Scots were defeated. Wallace called for a retreat. They all ran away. Wallace managed to escape, but just with his life, he then went into hiding. He was in hiding for a number of months before he was seen again. He wasn't seen again because he headed across to mainland Europe, uh, most likely France um, and potentially Italy as well. I have read accounts to say that William Wallace was probably at some point in Rome Possibly as a guest of the Pope. Now, the, the church did have a huge big play on everything that was happening here. It was the church that told people what to believe and that sort of thing. So, William Wallace potentially could have been in Rome. He could have went to see the Pope. Um, but it's it's not. we're not entirely um, convinced by that. Just before, though, he headed across to Europe, he resigned his position as the sole guardian of Scotland, at which point he was replaced by a man called John Common and another man called Robert Bruce, who becomes Robert the Bruce. That story we will continue on next week, uh, but just to let you know kind of where everything is from there. So Wallace heads across to Europe, he's away for roughly four years, so he leaves 1298, comes back 1302. 
1303, we know that William Wallace was part of the Scottish victory at the Battle of Rosslyn. Now, Rosslyn, for those of you that have not seen the film or read the book, The Da Vinci Code, uh, that's Rosslyn Chapel. The battle took place right next door. There's Rosslyn Glen and Rosslyn Castle down there as well. Uh, so they had this big major battle there. The Scots led by John Common at the time uh, with William Wallace just as a simple soldier. He never returned back as a leader or anything like that. He just returned simply as a soldier. 1304, there's not very much spoken of Wallace probably just training up soldiers and then 1305 rolls around on the 5th of august in 1305 is when william wallace was finally captured by the english army he'd been sought after for these seven years or so since the battle of falkirk but he had managed to elude everyone now, in the film Braveheart, the, the, the scene where William Wallace is betrayed because he was betrayed by a good friend of his. In the film, he is depicted as being betrayed by Robert the Bruce and Robert the Bruce's father. This is completely and utterly untrue. Robert the Bruce was potentially not even in the country at the time and potentially had never really met much with Wallace, maybe two or three times throughout the course of the time that they were both alive at the same time in Scotland. So it is very, very untrue. Um, what I have always said is why would we consider Robert the Bruce to be one of Scotland's greatest ever kings if he was the man to betray our national hero? It uh, just doesn't make any sense. William Moss was actually betrayed by a man called John Menteith, who was a Scottish knight who had changed allegiances to be loyal to Edward I. So William Wallace was turned over to the English army at Rob Royston near Glasgow. Rob Royston is a town named after quite a famous man from that particular area, Rob Roy, Robert McGregor, who probably in a later podcast we'll end up talking about him. So Wallace is captured. He's led down to England, which takes roughly 18 days to get there um, he was forced to walk the entire way and I'm sure that if he was to fall at any point he was probably dragged until he got back up onto his feet but he was taken all the way down to London taken to Westminster Hall where he was put on trial for roughly 138 different charges the main one of which being treason most of the time that Wallace was in Westminster Hall and his charges being read to him he remained defiant and remained quiet however when he was told that he was going to be tried for treason he spoke up and he says how can you try me for treason when England is foreign to me my allegiance lies with my king the king of Scots John Balliol end quote however this trial did not matter the trial was a mockery. It was to make a mockery of William Wallace. Regardless of what Wallace said or what Wallace did, he was going to be found guilty. And he was going to be executed. 
During the course of the trial, it was made very clear that William Wallace was not going to be tried as a nobleman, which of course he was. We know that he was Sir William Wallace by this particular point, which means that he should have been tried as a nobleman, but he was not. He was tried as a commoner because the English courts refused to recognise that Wallace had been given a title by another Scottish nobleman. So William Wallace, instead of being executed in a humane way by beheading, just simply beheading, he was sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered. Now this particular part of the podcast, I'm going to put out a little warning here that it is going to get a little bit graphic from here on out. Some people like the blood, guts and gore of history, some people don't. If you don't, skip to the end. But uh, here is how William Wallace was really executed. Because once again, in the film Braveheart, they show that the executioner was willing to give Wallace mercy. And at no point was Wallace ever offered mercy. From Westminster Hall, he was taken to the Tower of London. He was probably there for about 30 minutes, all the while being stripped completely naked and attached to a wooden board that was tied to the back of a horse. Wallace was then dragged about a mile through the streets of London, all the while being pelted by stones and rotten fruit and vegetables until he arrived at his execution place of Smithfield the Market. When he arrived there, he was already bleeding. They took him from that board, they tied a noose around his neck and they hung him until he lost consciousness. Once he'd lost consciousness, he was brought back down to the floor and revived, probably by a very cold bucket of water being poured over his face. He was then put on the stretching rack where he was stretched and then his testicles and penis were both removed and then an incision was made in the lower part of his belly to retrieve his bowels. He was disemboweled whilst he was still alive. They then chopped off his head and cut his body into four separate pieces. Now the last of his internal organs to be removed was his heart because to show a beating heart to the crowd was seen as significant in some way. But his body was cut up into four separate pieces. The head was put on a spike on London Bridge, displayed for all to see, for anyone else who would commit treason against Edward I. And the four parts of his body, each one was sent to a different place around Scotland or England. Uh, There was a piece placed in Stirling and in Perth in Scotland, and then Berwick and Newcastle, which are of course nowadays down in England. They were displayed there uh, because to scatter Wallace's body around the country there would be no specific burial place or there would be nowhere for people to gather specifically to pay their respects to the man. That's why we have the William Wallace Monument. We don't have an actual grave site for William Wallace. Uh, We don't know where most of his body ended up. I mean, well, we know where parts of it ended up But where are those parts nowadays? We're not entirely sure. Uh, Again, from the research in which I've done, Wallace's skull is believed to still be in the possession of the English monarchy. Uh, So from what I read, it has been held in a box in Buckingham Palace 
Um, and But I can't say 100% if that is true. Uh, it's just a report that I have read somewhere online. So William Wallace is now dead. What do the Scots do from here? There is plenty more to come, but that will have to be in the next episode. So in these two episodes, we have now dealt with the, the rise of William Wallace and then, I suppose, the demise of William Wallace. We will continue the story next week with the rise of Robert the Bruce. Now, once again, folks, if you are enjoying this podcast, please please subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, and head over to the Facebook page. Look for The Scottish History Podcast, um, or type in Scott History Pod, all one word, on any of these particular websites, and you will be able to find us. I'm going to try and make a website where everything is all uh, held in one place, so it's just one click away. But please follow on these uh, places so that you can keep up to date with when the next episode is going to be. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you again soon.